Our Old Testament reading is taken from Psalm 100. You will find it on page 604 in your pew Bibles. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament lesson is from Revelation. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. It's on page 1236 in your Bibles. Hear God's word. Page 1238, sorry. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. May God bless to us the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. A few months ago, IPC conducted a congregational survey on music. Many of you took part in that. The church's music ministry found itself at a crossroads after Shane Davidson stepped down from leading the ministry for 20 years. The survey gave some insight into the tastes and preferences of this congregation, which, as you might expect in a church like this, are pretty diverse. The information that was received there, along with input from a congregational forum that you had back in the fall, has uh, informed the church council as it's made some decisions about moving forward. For now, Gordon Schultz and uh, Chandler Cudlip are uh, providing strong leadership for our morning music ministry, along with Ruth Fister, who continues to share her wonderful gifts on the organ. Some important decisions, though, still remain. Uh, is it better to have the leadership of the music ministry centralized in one person or shared among several people? What's the right balance between utilizing the gifts of professionals who earn their livelihood in music and are compensated for their contribution and those who lead worship without compensation as volunteers? What roles do the pastors 
the music leaders, the council play in overseeing and coordinating worship? Where do children fit in? And how do you take into account the variety of tastes that were revealed in that music survey? Well, as the choir begins its summer break today, I'd like to step back and reflect with you on, well, why do we do all this? Why is music such an important part of worship? And why do we worship in the first place? Well, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, has a short summary of what we believe that's presented in a question and answer format. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and and we share it with other Reformed churches. The very first question of this catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, there are lots of ways that we glorify God. We do that when we live an upright life, when we treat other people with love and respect, when we work to make the world a more just and peaceful place. And one of the central ways we glorify and enjoy God is in our worship. Glorifying God through worship is... uh, one of the key themes of the, of the Bible, the very first thing that Noah did when he left the ark was build an altar and worship God in gratitude for his deliverance through the flood. And God showed him the rainbow in response. When Abraham entered the land of Canaan, which God had promised his ancestors, he built an altar there for worship. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, God also gave him some pretty elaborate instructions on how to worship. God gave Moses the exact dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant where the priests were to go and make sacrifices, precise descriptions of what the priests were to wear, and a very detailed outline of what their rituals were supposed to be. Now, that's the place where a lot of people who start out uh, with a, a resolve to read the Bible from cover to cover give up. There are two long books in the, in the Bible, First and Second Corinthians, that go into great detail about the, how to worship God in the temple of Jerusalem. They judge the kings of Israel and of Judah by how attentive they were to the temple and to worship. The longest book in the Bible, the Psalms that Sam read from this morning, was the hymn book of ancient Israel. Many of the Psalms have uh, superscriptions or headings that tell the choir director what tune they're supposed to use as they sing those Psalms. Jesus did much of his teaching in the synagogues and the temples where Jews gathered for worship. He faithfully took part in the worship of his day. In John 4.23, he tells the woman at the well, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, 
and worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. One of the reasons Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, his letter is now part of the New Testament, was to resolve some disputes they were having about how do you properly worship. And the Bible draws toward a close with a passage that we just read in Revelation describing how the whole creation is gathered before God in order to give praise. When God's people worship, we open ourselves to be filled with the goodness and glory of God, to be shaped as creatures who are made by the Holy One. Now, of course, there are plenty of examples of people just going through the motions of worship without really glorifying or praising God. The Old Testament prophets and Jesus were clear that if worship does not affect the way we live, if it doesn't shape us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, then we're insulting God, not glorifying God. We've probably all been to worship services where we didn't feel God was being gloried, where we didn't feel lift up and enjoying God, where the services tended to sort of push us away rather than to draw us near. Huckleberry Finn, the main character of Mark Twain's novel, was a rambunctious, independent-minded boy who, after his father abandoned him, was put in the foster care of a Miss Watson and her uh, widowed sister. Miss Watson was very strict in her worship and her observance of the rituals of the upright life, her prayer practices, and she was obsessed with getting things right more than she was with enjoying God. When Miss Watson's sister told Huck that if he didn't behave himself and tend to his prayers and just do right, then he was going to go to the bad place. And Huck thought to himself, well, you know, if Miss Watson's going to be in heaven, then that alternative doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> now, those of us who plan and lead worship have an obligation to reflect the joy and love and majesty of the God we worship, not to just go through the motions and do it because, well, that's what we're supposed to do. One of the things I value about IPC is that you set your expectations high for your preachers and your musicians, as we certainly saw this morning. You expect us to help you bring out your creative best to the Lord. But sometimes, Worship falls flat because we, the worshipers, are not prepared. We have certain expectations for what worship should be. And if those expectations aren't met, then we don't feel like we've worshipped. Sometimes you just have to be open and to know what's going on, to be uh, engaged in a, a new experience or, left, or else you're kind of left behind. It's kind of like my relationship with football or soccer, as we call it in the United States. For some reason, those of you who are Americans know, soccer's had a hard time catching on in the U.S. Recently, I heard someone say it's been America's game of the future since 1972. <laughs> and I would occasionally turn on a match on TV and try to watch it, but after a few minutes, give up and boredom. Even when my kids were little and played, you know, community league soccer, 
I'd go and enjoy watching them frolic and have fun, but I didn't really know what was going on. But then, in 2008, I was visiting my daughter and her husband in Madrid. We were, uh, one afternoon, we were at a sidewalk cafe having an apero, and I heard this commotion down the, down the road. And it got louder and louder, and people started getting up and looking and craning their necks. And I got up and I looked, and there was an overpass just down the street, and this huge crowd making its way across the overpass. And pretty soon, there appeared this open-air bus with the, all these people, men, on top of it. It was the Spanish national team who had just won the European Cup. Well, I had heard, you know, that this football thing was a big deal. But now here I was, caught up in all the passion and excitement of it. So I think, well, maybe there's something here. So two, two years later, 2010, I was back in, in Madrid while the World Cup was going on. And I let my son-in-law and some of his friends kind of explain to me what was going on. They uh, explained, you know, well, that, that's what an offside is. And that's what a header is. And look at how he moves the ball and blocks and all these wonderful, uh, you know, moves. And so by... By 2010, here I was in Spain, and that's the year they won the World Cup. So now I get it. And now I actually have a second team, Switzerland, to pull for. <laughs> and so it's kind of an every four-year thing, I have to admit. In church terms, I'd be kind of what you call a Christmas and Easter football fan. But anyway understanding what was going on, sharing the excitement of those around me, I got, I got into it. I knew what was happening. Well, one of the blessings of being part of the Church of Christ that spans thousands of years and the entire human race is that people have found all kinds of ways to glorify and enjoy God. And one of the blessings of the International Protestant Church of Zurich is that many of those traditions are represented right here in our community. The richness of the world's Christian worship can open us to new ways of experiencing God among us as we glorify and worship God. Something like that happened to me last summer. A friend and I were walking the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrimage route across northern Spain. And at heart, it's a religious pilgrimage. Most of the Roman Catholic parishes in the small villages along the way will have a pilgrim's mass at the end of the day where those who've been walking on their journey can uh, have a brief time of worship. Well, my friend Larry and I would go to those masses occasionally, but I would participate in them from the perspective of my reformed heritage, noticing very carefully how certain parts of the service deviated from what I had been brought up to consider proper Protestant worship. About two-thirds of the way through our journey, we met a Jesuit priest named Mike. We hit it off, and for the rest of the journey, we were what you call a Camino family. We stuck together. Now, as you might expect, Mike was a lot more diligent about attending the Camino Masses 
than Larry and I had been. In fact, if there was one in the town where we were spending the night, he would definitely go, usually asking the priest if he could assist in administering the sacrament. And so because of Mike, Larry and I became more regular in our participation. And during the day as we were walking along through the countryside, we'd sometimes talk about the services we'd attended the night before. And Mike explained what had been happening and why it was important to him and kind of overcame some of my Protestant misconceptions about what had been going on. And it was obvious how, you know, each of those services sort of shaped the way that he uh, engaged each day. So the more I participated, the more I learned from Mike, the more I got into it, the more deeply I was moved by the services. Now, there were some parts that, in which I didn't take part. I mean, I skipped over the parts of the adoration of Mary. And out of respect for Mike and my hosts, I did not partake of the bread and the cup. I was still angry that they didn't allow women to be priests and officiate at the table. But the beauty of the liturgy, especially the way it engaged all my senses, even sometimes when they used incense, I brought my sense of smell to glorifying and praising God. Well, those worship services became an important part of the spiritual growth that I experienced. Each congregation, like each person, has its own personality the practices and the styles of worship that suit it best. There are certain ways of worshiping God that we gravitate toward. I mean, I love the beauty and the majesty of this morning service. Others prefer the more casual style of the evening worship. But the book of Revelation describes a scene when Christ comes in glory, where people from every nation, tribe, people, and language are standing before the throne. And I suspect that each is bringing praise in their own special way. Some are singing hymns accompanied by the organ, and others are singing praise songs led by a worship band. West Africans are there with their drums. Scots Presbyterians are there with our reasoned arguments. Pentecostals from the Caribbean are there with their fervent cries. Tattooed millennials are there with a hip-hop beat. Germans singing Bach chorales, all contributing to the chorus of praise that's blended together by the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony. When I was growing up and through most of my ministry, we would partake of communion by what I call curbside service. That's where we have the little pieces of bread and cups of communion that are served by the elders and deacons and the trays passed back and forth along the aisles of the pews. And one of the things I value about that way of partaking the sacrament is I get to, it's very quiet, focused. It's kind of my own personal time to really commune with Jesus. And for these last number of years, I've been doing this interim ministry and worshiping in different congregations. And more and more, the practice is becoming common like we do here at IPC, where the congregation stands up and comes forward to receive the elements. Well, when I first started doing that a number of years ago, it was kind of annoying because I really did miss having that special quiet time there all by myself with the bread and the juice. 
But at some point, it dawned on me that the Lord's Supper is not something Christ gave so he and I could just have this private time together. It's a gift that he's given to the whole church. And watching the congregation walk forward to this table that Jesus has prepared creates in me an image of what it's going to be like when the promise is fulfilled that they will come from north and south and east and west and sit at table in the Lord's kingdom. We demonstrate here in our local way what we're going to do when we're joined together with that heavenly host. So when I'm in the pew before I'm invited up or after I've received the elements and returned to my seat, I still enjoy those moments of peace with the Lord. But I also look up and marvel at the people that Christ has invited to his table. Young and old, powerful and weak, some dear friends and some who rubbed me the wrong way all joined together in praise and practicing for heaven. And that's what we do when we worship. We practice for heaven. We'll be glorifying God there with everything we are, joined with the gifts of all God's people, singing new songs in new tongues, with music of every land, joined in with the earth and the moon and the stars, praising in that chorus, saying praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen.